welcome to this podcast series called The Alphabet of the Heart. My name is James Kirby and I'm here with Dr. James Doty. And welcome, Dr. Doty, to our first podcast. Great to be with you, James, and uh, thank you for facilitating this. Oh, my pleasure. And to give everyone uh, some background first, uh, this podcast series, The Alphabet of the Heart, is a brand new initiative by the Centre for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, or CCARE for short, at Stanford University. If you're interested in more about what CCARE does, please just jump online and check out their website, ccare.stanford.edu. It has a depth of information and resources about compassion. Now, Dr. Doty is the director of CCARE. He is a clinical professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University. He's an entrepreneur and philanthropist, and the list goes on and on. Dr. Doty's background and biography is truly quite remarkable. In comparison, my background is quite brief. <laughs> my name is James. I'm a clinical psychologist where I deliver compassion-focused therapies, and I'm also a researcher uh, who examines compassion. And as you've probably guessed by now, I'm from Australia. And I must say, it's just lovely to be here with you today, Dr. Doty. But moving right along, this year in 2016, Dr. Doty released an insightful book called Into the Magic Shop, which describes his life and also shares his own experiences with compassion and his own methods for cultivating compassion, one of which was a mnemonic he called and created, and it is the alphabet of the heart. And this will be the focus of this podcast series. Dr. Doty, would you like to first introduce us to where this idea of the alphabet of the heart came from? Yes, thank you, James. Um, what uh, transpired was that I had been uh, invited to speak to the incoming group of medical students at my alma mater, Tulane University, in 2011, and this was really a great honor for me. And the reality is that there's some degree of cynicism oftentimes uh, because of the state of medicine and maybe even the world. And I really wanted to try to inspire these individuals as part of this event called the White Coat Ceremony, wherein they receive a white coat, they take the oath of Hippocrates or similar type of oath, and there's a speaker who uh, ideally represents the highest ideals of medicine. And for me, uh, as I said, it was a great honor to be that individual. And I spent a great deal of time reflecting on my own life trajectory and also those things that had inspired me or motivated me to be the person that I am. And after great reflection, I came up with this concept called the alphabet of the heart, which medical students need to learn a lot of information. Oftentimes they use mnemonics. So I created this mnemonic based on 10 letters of the alphabet, beginning with C and ending with L. And it was very moving for these students. And in fact, that talk got a, a wonderful standing ovation. And about two months later, after having given the talk, I received an email from a woman by the name of Anne Hel Helmke, uh, who uh, is a spiritual director at the largest homeless shelter in the United States, which is in San Antonio. And she told me that uh, she had become burned out at her job, felt she could no longer go on because she just didn't have the strength and the resources to do that. And on her last day at work, even though she had been given uh, scripture and encouragement by a variety of friends, she still felt she just couldn't do it anymore. And on that last day, someone shared with her my talk. And she indicated to me that that talk, the alphabet of the heart, actually gave her the strength to continue at her job. And what's quite extraordinary, 
over uh, several months, uh, she continued to have conversations with me. And the first one was that uh, because the alphabet of the heart had been so moving and inspiring for her, she started sharing it with clients at the homeless shelter, and it became a very powerful tool to center them each day. Subsequently, she sent me another email and indicated she had a conversation with a friend of hers and her daughter, who was nine at the time, and the daughter uh, makes beads. And as you probably know, throughout essentially every religion, beads oftentimes are an important component. They're prayer beads or malas, and these are uh, used to keep people centered, if you will, and become, in fact, a ritual. And uh, this young lady uh, made a set of beads based on the alphabet, 10 letters, uh, 10 wooden beads, and she added, though, a, a golden bead to represent the golden rule. Do unto others how we wish to be treated. And as a result, uh, I was very moved by this, and uh, she indicated that uh, she was sharing these beads with others, and again, uh, were very powerful, and asked me if she could sell them for the center as a fundraiser, and I immediately agreed. A few months later, she sent me another email, and she had created actually a video called Compassion Beads, and uh, it was really quite moving. Uh, it showed this young lady's hands where she actually made a set of beads, and it talked about how you can uh, manifest the intention of the alphabet by using these beads in a daily practice. And it was very, very moving. And those that video actually can be found at salsa.net uh, piece, P-E-A-C-E. And um, it's a wonderful video. And in fact, you can purchase those. Uh, and in fact, what's interesting is I have been a longtime meditator. And while I have integrated that into my own uh, life, if you will, uh, on a very deep level, what I found that I've done now is I actually use these beads each morning and with intention go through each of the letters and uh, carry a set with me as I uh, go about my day. And I have them in my pocket and periodically I will uh, uh, touch one of the beads and then think about what that letter means. And it's a wonderful way to manifest your intention and redirect your attention uh, to uh, really what's important, I think. Those letters uh, are 10, as I mentioned, uh, beginning with C and ending with L. And just to go over it very quickly, uh, C uh, represents uh, compassion uh, for self and others. And it makes you recognize that, in fact, everyone is suffering on uh, some level. Also, that uh, many times we don't appreciate our own suffering, and we must be self-compassionate First of all, to be compassionate to others, but also affirm that we are worth uh, receiving compassion and, and being cared for. And a lot of times, many of us uh, really don't feel that way. So it's a wonderful way to center yourself in that regard. The second is dignity, recognizing the dignity of every person, regardless of their station or circumstance, and realizing that we are all equal and everyone is deserving of respect and dignity. E is for equanimity, recognizing that life will always have its ups and downs, 
and while one often wishes for the ups to continue forever, it's just not possible in our lives. And it's to remind us not to grab too tight on the ups and also recognize that uh, while there may be downs, in general, they're not lasting forever. And also to recognize that the down experiences, if you will, can sometimes offer us extraordinarily uh, wonderful lessons about life in general and how to respond to adversity and also to reflect on uh, just your own situation and how really uh, many of the things we think are, are downs give us an opportunity to actually learn on a very deep level. And also the understanding that steadiness of your emotional state, having a sense of calmness even in the face of ups and downs, really is what will assist you in uh, living in this world and not getting lost on the extremes or their importance. Because again, the reality is and what helps you deal with issues are essentially having a calmness of spirit, uh, no matter what events are happening around you. F is for forgiveness. Uh, the reality is that we are going to disappoint people or anger people by our actions, and this will also uh, happen to us, where we will feel angry or hostile at a person who we feel have slighted us. And what happens in those situations is that many people hold on to this anger and hostility towards that person, but it really results in them not being present or able to get over that emotion. And as a result, as some people have given the analogy, it's as if taking poison and somehow believing that it's going to affect the other person, and the only person it affects, unfortunately, is you. G is for gratitude, accepting how fortunate we are, and the reality that for most of us, we are in a much better position than the vast majority of people throughout the world. H is for humility, and this can be very, very difficult, especially if you're an accomplished person and you feel like your own efforts have resulted in that success. But the reality is that we are no more important than any other person. And if you are able to look at every person as an equal, deserving of respect, that's really the best position to be in because otherwise you engage in oftentimes pity or sympathy and this comes from oftentimes a feeling that somehow you're superior to this person who is suffering. And none of us, frankly, are superior to anyone else. I is for integrity. And this can be a slippery slope when one compromises their integrity or values for something of far, far less value. And it's this idea to, again, reinforce this concept of uh, knowing what your values are and not compromising them. J is for social justice, this understanding that each of us, because of our own success, uh, has responsibility for those who are most vulnerable in society or those who are less fortunate. K is for kindness. As many of you know, the definition of compassion is the recognition of the suffering of another with a desire or motivation to alleviate that suffering. <clears throat> but kindness is the performance of an act of goodness uh, or caring for another, and they don't even actually have to be suffering. But it's really the active component of compassion, where you are acting with intention. And finally, all of this is contained by love. And when this is given freely to another individual, 
individual and you're able to open your heart to others, uh, this is really the greatest gift you can give to others and give yourself without being judgmental because everyone deserves love. I can see how uh, the students, when they listen to this at the the white coat ceremony, were really quite moved. There is so much depth and also uh, interconnectedness between each of those um, attributes as well. And, And the focus of this podcast series is that we're going to spend time on each letter of that mnemonic. And in each episode, what we'll do is we'll spend a small sort of period reflecting on that particular attribute and why that attribute uh, was was included within the mnemonic for Dr. Doty. And then second, we'll then move on to some of the research outlining what the science says about that attribute. And then to wrap up, we will finish up each episode by providing perhaps a practical tip or exercise that you could look at, including in your day-to-day life, uh, in order to cultivate that specific attribute. So three parts really to each episode, why that specific letter, what the science says about that letter, and tips to build that letter into your life. And you'll, of course, be able to access this podcast series through a number of different uh, uh, pathways. One would be through the Seed Care website. Another one will be through your website, Dr. Doty. Yes, uh, jamesrdotymd.com, and also the website for uh, my book, which is intothemagicshop.com. Fantastic. So there's a number of different ways that you can look at accessing this, and feel free to listen to them as often as you'd like. So, I mean, Dr. Dodi, when you were sitting down bringing together this, uh, you know, uh, fantastic mnemonic which you gave as part of that white coat ceremony, I can't help but think it must have begun before that point as well. When did compassion and this field of research first really uh, begin to take an interest in your life? Well, that's a good question. Um <clears throat> As you know from my book, um, which is in part uh, autobiographical, but really more of a memoir, I discuss my difficult background, and I won't uh, go through that all with you today, but the reality is I was in a position oftentimes where I was suffering myself, and I would see people who um, had means, power, position, wealth, uh, who could really alleviate my suffering and did not do so or make any effort. And then I would see uh, individuals who really had uh, nothing, yet would immediately respond to the suffering of another, including myself. And this paradox and these behaviors stayed with me from childhood until finally I was in a position uh, to actually uh, study this. And it had been on my mind uh, for a number of years, and I had left Stanford for a period. And when I returned, I decided to start examining this area and got together a group of researchers in neuroscience and um, psychology. And we uh, began uh, some studies looking at this. And then uh, extraordinarily, uh, as I was walking through campus one day, Uh, I had this vision of the Dalai Lama and thought it would be wonderful to engage him and actually to come to Stanford and uh, talk about compassion, since, of course, he's a worldwide icon who is viewed as an extraordinarily compassionate individual. And uh, I was able to arrange a meeting. And during that meeting, he not only immediately agreed to come, but uh, at the end of that meeting, uh, he began an animated dialogue with his primary English translator, 
Upton Jinpa. And at the end of it, uh, Jinpa turned to me and he said, His Holiness is so moved uh, by your intention that he wants to uh, make a personal donation to your work. And at that time, he gave the largest donation uh, to any non-Tibetan cause. And really, that resulted in others coming forth. And uh, uh, essentially, he's the founding benefactor of the center at Stanford, uh, which is really quite extraordinary. In regard to the alphabet, as we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, once this book was published, and as you know, uh, it's a New York Times bestseller, and uh, it's also recently been named um, by the Independent Publishers Group as the best memoir of 2016 and is being translated into 22 languages. But I've received so many emails from people who have been moved by that alphabet of the heart, and many people ask me to share it and to give more of a background. And really, that's the motivation uh, behind this podcast series. Fantastic. And, and I can't help but think, Dr. Dady, I mean, as a neurosurgeon, trying to bring a real spotlight to understanding the science underpinning compassion, you must have come up against a few obstacles. I mean, were there a few? Well, you have to understand that sometimes uh, when we use the term compassion, for a number of people, it's looked at as this soft, fluffy thing that... It's sort of a great idea, but really has no significant meaning. But through my own uh, research in this area, uh, both understanding the neurophysiology uh, as well as the neuroscience, and looking back historically, uh, not only at our evolution, but the development of culture, uh, religion, and society itself, really at the core of all of these is compassion and the power it manifests, not only uh, in regard to the individual, but in regard to others around the individual. And we know now that when individuals act with compassion, it has a profound effect in terms of their own physiology, shifting their autonomic nervous system, and we can go into more detail about this later, from sort of a uh, increased tone in the sympathetic nervous system, which is the flight or fight response, to that of the parasympathetic nervous system, which is often called the rest and digest system. And when one is in that mode, they are much more engaged with others. Uh, They see the world outside of themselves and their own interest. They're relaxed, they're calm. And amazingly, there are areas in the brain associated with creativity, productivity, and even decision-making are positively affected. Uh, So, Uh, My own explorations have found, and I think others have found now, that actually compassion itself is not soft. It actually is an integral part of our species and has a profound, profound effect uh, on um, one's physiology and one's worldview. Absolutely, and I think this is a really nice segue into perhaps introducing people to a way that they can start to look at um, taking a small step towards cultivating this a little bit more um, in their life. So, uh, Dr. Doty, um, I can't help but put you on the spot here, really. But um, in reading your book, you go through a series of you know, tricks Ruth taught you along, along the way in, in, in terms of your beginning to understand um, this interconnection between uh, 
you know, the brain and the heart. And I was wondering if it would be possible to take us through one of those now. Of course. Uh, but maybe uh, before I do that, let me set the stage here for sure. those who may not have read the book. Sure. Uh, the book is called Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart. And it tells my own story uh, growing up. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. Uh, he was often unemployed. My mother had suffered a stroke and was partially paralyzed and had a seizure disorder, was chronically depressed, attempted suicide multiple times, neither had gone to college. And uh, we were on public assistance essentially my entire life. And when one grows up in a dysfunctional environment like that, Oftentimes, one uh, develops a sense of hopelessness, despair, anger at the situation, and uh, a feeling that uh, there's no one to talk to, there's no way out. And for me, uh, even at the age of 12, I was becoming a juvenile delinquent because I saw no future for me, so why try? And uh, unfortunately, this is too common of a situation. But... What changed for me was that at the age of 12, I walked into a magic shop. And when I walked in, there was a woman who I describe as an earth mother type sitting behind the counter, actually reading a paperback with these uh, reading glasses perched on her nose and a little chain around her neck, holding them. And she looked up and she had this radiant smile that I felt immediately embraced me and made me feel comfortable. And uh, I began asking her questions about magic, and she told me that she was the mother of the owner and that he was out doing an errand. Frankly, she knew nothing about magic, at least in the shop. Uh, we began a conversation, and it was quite animated, and she uh, actually, though, asked me some penetrating questions, which probably normally I would have felt uncomfortable answering about my background and my parents, but for whatever reason... Uh, I answered them honestly, and uh, after about 20 or 30 minutes, she said, I really like you, and if you come in every day, because I'm going to be here for another six weeks during the summer, I'll teach you something that I think could change your life. And uh, so for the next six weeks, for an hour to two every day, I showed up, and over the course of that six weeks, she taught me some profound lessons which changed the trajectory of my life. Prior to this, I had indicated uh, that oftentimes I felt as if I was, being, uh, was a leaf being blown by an ill wind. But after uh, this experience with her, I saw the world a different way. And what's amazing about that is when you change how you see the world, and as an example, I mentioned I had despair, hopelessness, anger, that after this period of time with her, actually dissipated, and I saw the world optimistically. And I'll tell you that when you change how you see the world, at least for me in this situation, it changed how the world reacted to me and really is responsible for the success that I've had to date. Over the course of that six weeks, she taught me four lessons, and I call them Ruth's Tricks. And the first one was what I call relaxing the body. And I'll go through that with you shortly. The second was taming the mind, which I'll also share with you. The third was opening the heart. And the fourth was something I call uh, clarity of intention. 
And really, uh, it was integrating those into my life that resulted in me seeing the world in a different way and really gave me a toolbox, if you will, that allowed me to go forth in the world and no longer have the same degree of fear and anxiety that I'd had previously. The first trick that I'm going to share with you, uh, relaxing the body, um, let me give some context for that. What many of us don't appreciate as we go through life is really how our life situation oftentimes uh, affects our bodies. I mentioned to you a few moments ago about how uh, some of these practices can affect your vagus nerve, which is this connection between your brain or brainstem and your heart or other organs in your body. And this highway of nerves is actually a two-way highway. And uh, it really, really, uh, when stimulated, uh, can have profound, profound negative effects on you. As an example, I mentioned my own personal situation, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I was chronically engaging my fight or flight response. This is a response that has been with us since our evolution from earliest times, and in its best state allows us to survive uh, a situation that uh, puts us at risk uh, of injury or death. And uh, as a result, uh, many times when this is engaged on a chronic level, doesn't work for us because it's not a situation where we run away and we're away from the threat, and then our system goes back to baseline which, with engagement of what I uh, mentioned, the parasympathetic nervous system, this rest and digest system. But in these situations where you're chronically fearful, or as I said, uh, uh, I felt like a leaf being blown by an ill wind, I never knew what was going to happen next. As a result, I had stress, I had anxiety, I had fear. And this translated into a couple of things. One was stress in my body in regard to my muscles were always tense. And also, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but it interfered with my ability to be present or to attend or to be focused. And we know now that being present and having focus and attention are really uh, part of what is necessary to accomplish tasks and ultimately to succeed in life. So what Ruth taught me in this first lesson, not only was the recognition of this reality, but also a way in which one could overcome this and as a result be able to uh, be present or attend. When I talk about being present, it's interesting because if you look at our evolution as a species, our species has this unique capacity to have memory of a past, evolved more so than any other species, but also an understanding of a future. And for most mammals, uh, there's never any thought about a future. Uh, you are simply thinking about what is happening around you immediately, and you are always present. But when you have a future, 
it, number one, means uncertainty because you don't know what's going to happen. And in the human species, uncertainty results in stress and anxiety and uh, engagement of the sympathetic nervous system. And the other thing that does that is ruminating about the past where you're thinking about what you should have done, could have done, might have done. And this oftentimes also uh, manifests by inability to attend or be focused or present. So with that in mind, uh, she gave me a tool that allowed me to overcome these, uh, if you will, negative effects of our evolution and to uh, really be able to be present. And I'm going to go through that with you in the form of a guided meditation. So this is Ruth's trick number one, relaxing the body. One of the first things you have to do to do this successfully is really to find, first of all, a place where it's quiet and where you're not going to be interrupted. So really you can be present for doing this exercise because you're not going to be able to receive its greatest benefit unless you don't have uh, typical distractions that many of us have in modern society. And you really have to have enough time because if you don't have enough time, you're going to be thinking about how little time you have, which is going to interfere with your ability to manifest uh, the successful use of this technique. The other thing I would also say is that you should try to do this not necessarily at a time when you're maximally stressed, but really at a time where you're not stressed, or at least your stress is at uh, the most minimal you can make it. And again, you should avoid avoid substances that can alter your ability to attend, such as alcohol, recreational drugs, or unless... or you're very, very tired and you just don't have the energy to really do this. So the first thing I would recommend is that you sit for a few minutes and simply relax and think of what it is you wish to accomplish with this exercise, relaxing the body. This is your intention and you should define this for yourself. And sit for a few moments with this intention. Now I'd like you to next to simply close your eyes and then begin by taking three deep breaths in through your nose and slowly out through your mouth. And repeat this until you get used to this type of breathing so that the breathing itself is not distracting. In slowly through your nose and slowly releasing it through your mouth over and over. Once you feel comfortable breathing in this manner, I'd like you now to think about how you're sitting and imagine that you're looking at yourself. You should be sitting in a chair ideally, sitting straight up, having your hands in a comfortable position at your side, And now I'd like you to just begin by focusing on your toes, seeing them in your mind as you're slowly breathing through your nose, slowly exhaling through your mouth. 
and imagine them almost melting away as you continue to breathe in and slowly out. Only focus on your toes and your feet. It'll be easy to be distracted or have your thoughts wonder. And this is very common. Don't be discouraged. When this happens, simply begin again, relaxing the muscles of your toes and your feet. Breathing slowly in through your nose and then exhaling through your mouth. Once you've been able to relax your toes and your feet, extend the exercise upward, consciously relaxing your calves and your thighs. Then relax the muscles of your abdomen and chest while slowly breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth. In and out as you relax your abdomen and your chest. And next think of your spine and relax the muscles all along your spine up to your shoulders and your neck. Relax the muscles of your neck as you breathe in and out, slowly exhaling through your mouth. Now finally relax the muscles of your face and your scalp. As you are able to extend the relaxation of the muscles of your body, notice that when you do so, there is a sense of calmness overcoming you and that you feel good as your muscles have become relaxed you've released the tension in your body breathing in and slowly exhaling through your mouth at this point it's very common to feel sleepy or even to fall asleep because you're very relaxed that's okay it may take several attempts to get to this point and be able to hold this feeling of being relaxed without falling asleep. Be patient. Be kind to yourself. Now focus on your heart and think of relaxing your heart muscle as you slowly breathe in and out. And you will find as you do so that your heart rate will slow down as your body relaxes and as your breath slows. Now imagine for a moment that your body is completely relaxed and experience the sense of simply being as you slowly breathe in and out and feel the sense of warmth in your body. Many will feel that they are floating or will be overcome with a sense of calmness. Continue to slowly breathe in and slowly exhale Remember, the intention of this exercise is to develop a sense of relaxation, calmness, and warmth. Now slowly open your eyes and sit for a few minutes with your eyes open and just be with no other intention or thought. Breath and relaxation are the first steps toward taming the mind. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Doty, for that. That was uh, incredibly relaxing sitting here with you. Um, and uh, to let everybody know, I, I went through that myself. I closed my eyes and, and followed uh, Dr. Doty's uh, guided meditation there. And I think one of the first things I really noticed was how often I don't pay attention to my body. I, when you said, you know, bring attention to, you know, our toes, I was like, <laughs> I never bring my attention to my toes, yet they're so important for me getting around. So by taking that moment to slow down, I think is really important. And the other key thing I noticed was I was already feeling pretty relaxed, but I was able to even feel more calm within the body through going through that exercise, which only went for a couple of short minutes. But I think it's really important as we do these sorts of exercises to sort of ask ourselves those questions, you know, what do I notice now in my mind and body after that experience? Uh, Because it can really be quite telling, you know, for myself, it was noticing a shift um, in tension in my neck and shoulders, which I wasn't aware of prior to the exercise, and also recognizing how often my mind does wander. So during that exercise, am I doing this right or do I look a bit silly sitting beside you here now doing this exercise? So amazing how our mind can drift into the future and into the past so quickly like that. No, you're right. And it's it's actually interesting that you say that because uh, people oftentimes worry about what other people think and they're gauging how they behave based on uh, how others perceive them. And oftentimes this actually prevents them from being their true selves because they have uh, they feel they have to be something for someone else that's different from who they really are and i think with these types of exercises it lets you sit with yourself and um, also and this leads into uh, maybe the next thing that we're going to do is how so many of us don't appreciate that there's a dialogue going on in our head oftentimes and we think it is us and we think that it represents us and oftentimes especially in the western world that dialogue is not one of self-affirmation or kindness it's actually one of hypercriticality and telling us that we're not good enough we're not smart enough we're not handsome or beautiful uh, or we don't have the intelligence etc 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 and it's the nature, unfortunately, of, of modern Western society where you are gauging yourself against others and oftentimes uh, it's not fair to you uh, that you do so. And the reality is that when you have decided in your mind you're not able to do something or you're not smart enough, by de facto, that becomes a reality. And the wonderful thing about this next exercise we're going to talk about, this taming the mind, is that it gives you insight into this dialogue. And in the book, uh, I uh, use the analogy of a DJ playing records. And uh, uh, before you can, as an example, uh, escape from prison, you have to have an understanding that, in fact, you are in prison. And this insight uh, that Ruth gave me about this dialogue was uh, really understanding that I had created a prison for myself And as a result, the walls of that prison limited where I could go. And having insight into the reality that it was a self-created prison and I could uh, exit at any time uh, was quite extraordinary because if you didn't have insight into that reality, 
then you don't have the key to the prison. And it was really that insight and this exercise uh, that allowed me, if you will, to walk away from this prison that was limiting me and allowed me to uh, go far, far beyond what I had previously uh, defined as my limits. So let's now start with Ruth's exercise number two, taming the mind. If we refer back to Ruth's trick number one, which is what I would suggest you do prior to beginning this next trick, is then to be relaxed, again, in this quiet space where you have enough time, where you don't have to be anywhere in particular. And again, begin focusing on your breath, breathing through your nose and releasing through your mouth over and over again. Simply relax. When you're in this situation, it is common for thoughts to arise and for you to want to attend to them. Each time this occurs, return your focus to your breathing. Some find that actually thinking of their nostrils and the air entering and exiting through their mouth helps bring their focus back. Other techniques that assist in decreasing mind-wandering or distraction are the use of a mantra, a word, or a phrase repeated over and over, focusing on a flame is another example or an object. And again, these types of techniques help avoid giving our thoughts attention. In some practices, the teacher gives the mantra to the student who tells no one else the mantra. But you can pick whatever word or phrase you like as your mantra. Or, as I indicated, you can focus on a flame or another object. Find what works best for you. Everyone is different. That being said, recognize that it will take time and effort. Don't be discouraged. It may take a few weeks or even longer before you're seeing the profound effects of the quiet mind. Once you understand what it means to have a quiet mind, you'll find that you won't have the same desire to engage emotionally in the thoughts that are often negative or distracting. The calmness you felt from simply relaxing will increase because when you're not distracted by internal dialogue, the associated emotional response does not occur. It is this response that has an effect on the rest of our body. And actually, oftentimes is responsible for our muscles tightening and for us having the sense of being stressed. So using the mantra or focusing your attention on a flame or an object and simply going through this exercise will in and of itself quiet your mind. But one must do this for 20 to 30 minutes each day. And as you do it over and over, 
While you will have your mind wander at times, you will find that the more you do this and the longer you do this, that it will become less and less, and you will be able to not only be relaxed, but also to attend and remain focused, and that you will no longer have a response to that dialogue that is going on in your head. And ultimately, you will be able to change that dialogue to one of self-affirmation, self-compassion, and by doing so, allow you to be more compassionate with others. The reward for taming the mind is clarity of thought. Thank you again for that, Dr. Dirty. I, again, <laughs> sat here beside you engaged with that exercise. And I think what is, again, um, will be helpful for people is the opportunity to go back and, and complete those exercises again and again and again. So they're there for you to reflect on and, and have an opportunity to do again. Um, I noticed during that exercise, um, my mind is still was racing a lot, uh, but, but certainly near the end, it was slowing down and I really wish it went for longer. <laughs> so as you say, gradually building um, that length up can be very helpful for people to start to notice how um, our minds can ebb and flow with those different thoughts, emotions and memories. Well, I think one thing the listeners have to realize is that this is a practice. It takes time. It takes repetition. Mm -hmm. And to be patient and understand uh, this reality, many people get frustrated because I've had them say, well, my mind is always wondering no matter how often I do this. But one of the things is not to judge yourself. This isn't a race. This isn't a contest. Mm. And also to be gentle with yourself. There's no uh, passing or failing grade. Uh, and again, this is uh, what has happened in modern society where people feel that everything is being judged. Um, the purpose of this is to give you a set of tools that allow you to relax, to be present, to attend, and also to create a framework within your mind that allows you not only to be calm yourself, but to create an environment so that when you interact with others, there is a sense of calmness and we know from neuroscience that when we create an environment of compassion and calmness, that it's very nurturing. And that is what we seek. That is when we, uh, our physiology works its best. And as a result, when you are in that state, you create that environment for others, and it motivates them uh, to act in a similar type of fashion. Absolutely. And, and I guess that sort of brings this first podcast to somewhat of a close. And geez, it's been, it's been wonderful uh, doing this with you today, uh, Dr. Doty. Um, and I think in, in just uh, reflecting on, on everything we discussed, uh, today was really an introduction into the alphabet of the heart. And from this point, we'll then go into more depth of each one of those letters individually. So in our next podcast, we'll be spending the session examining compassion, the first letter of the alphabet of the heart. 
And I think between now and that second podcast, uh, things that we can sort of work on or practice at cultivating will be, of course, those uh, first two tricks that Ruth so kindly provided us, which you guided us through today. So uh, relaxing the body and also taming the mind. And also what you were talking about earlier about having a physical cue. So perhaps having the beads there, the compassion beads, which uh, you can um, look up uh, on, on, on the internet or um, go to the website again, which is www.salsa.net forward slash peace. Um, and that physical uh, cue can be a real primer to again engage with uh, that intention we're setting with the alphabet of the heart. And um, Dr. Dodd, is there anything you'd like to finish up on? Well, I just want to thank you for uh, sharing this with me today and uh, facilitating this conversation. And I really look forward to uh, sharing the rest of the alphabet of the heart with our listeners. So thank you so much, James. Thank you, Dr. Dodie.